Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Being a household of faith, that is the title of the message this morning. And I'd like to encourage you to take some notes, especially if your parents with us or grandparents, this might be good for you as well. Uh, this message this morning is aimed at helping those of us who are parents with young families. But I believe there's something here for everyone, including grandparents, for those whose kids are already grown, maybe for singles and uh, people that are, are about to get married, maybe have children one day, even for the children and the youth in this room. So I want to invite you to listen with an open heart to what the Spirit is saying to each of us. As I said in the child dedication just a moment ago, parents are primarily responsible for discipling their children and passing on their faith. But of course, the church has a role to play as well. Let's pray together. Father, we welcome your Holy Spirit here in this place. We open up our ears and our hearts to you. Speak to us words of wisdom, maybe of conviction and challenge, but also of encouragement and life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's begin with the scriptures. If you have a Bible, would you grab that and open up to Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The last of the first five books of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to read verses 4 through 12. I know you've done a lot of standing, but would you stand with me in the reading of the scriptures? Yeah, keep that blood going so you don't fall asleep in church. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The Lord your God will soon bring you into the land he swore to give you when he made a vow to your ancestors Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is a land with large, prosperous cities that you did not build. The houses will be richly stocked with goods you did not produce. You'll draw water from cisterns that you didn't dig, and you will eat from vineyards and olive trees you did not plant. When you have eaten your fill in this land, be careful not to forget the Lord who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In this passage that we just read together, Moses is preparing the post-Exodus generation, right? So the children of the parents who were led out of Egypt during the Exodus. He is describing how critical it is for their faith in God to become a way of life and to embrace religious practices that shape the hearts and the minds of their children especially while in the wilderness or in exile, which is a common theme within the scriptures, lest their faith not be passed down, or they give up their faith in good times, and as we heard, they forget the Lord. In other words, Moses is telling the people of God that if you don't embrace regular religious habits, practices, and routines, then they will return to the way of Egypt, the empire that enslaved them and can continue to do so in a spiritual sense. Even though they've left Egypt, Egypt can still be within them. And in the scriptures, Egypt, whether it's Egypt or Babylon or Rome, represents the spirit of the age. It represents the ways of the world. So think about that. Now, based on what I just said, some of you may be thinking, oh, wait a minute, I, I thought that being religious isn't a good thing, right? And didn't Jesus condemn religion? Well, let's think about that for a minute. Religion, I know, is commonly used today as a, as a pejorative, right? It's used in a, in a pejorative or a negative sense. But as you've heard me say before, and I'll continue to say, I think that that is misguided. And it's contributed to the ankle-deep discipleship we see in American Christianity today. Jesus, as you can see from this slide here, was a religious Jew. He was raised by pious parents. He went to synagogue regularly. He took pilgrimages to Jerusalem. He worshiped in the temple every Passover. He would have recited the Shema, which we just read in Deuteronomy 6, 4, probably daily. He would have fasted, tithed regularly, prayed at certain times, even wore a prayer shawl with tassels. You remember the woman that reached out to touch Jesus? It says the fringe of his garment, which is often a way of referring to the prayer tassels that a rabbi and a religious Jew would wear. Think about this. Jesus was religious. What Jesus condemned, though, was false piety, self-righteousness, hypocrisy, and we could say false religion. So I would really seriously ask you to stop using religion in a pejorative sense. If you mean false religion, then use the qualifier, because Jesus was religious, and he calls us to be religious as well, right? Not the religion for show, not the religion that doesn't penetrate and inform the heart, but rather a religion that does. And here's how we define religion and being religious way back in our spiritual and religious series in the fall of 2019. What is religion? We define it this way. Religion is a socio-cultural system of designated beliefs, values, behaviors, and practices that provide meaning, purpose, 
and direction to a person's life and to the world around them. So religion, the religion's intent is, see, to help focus our aim on our loves, right? And in this case, Jesus and the gospel. So religious practices that are meant to aim and focus our loves on Christ. Yes, of course, Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. You hear people say that. But, but we need religion so that we can follow Jesus. Just as Jesus had religious practices to focus on his father, we need it to focus on his son, Jesus. A functional definition of religion, which we see played out here in the service this morning, and it also could be at home, which we're talking about today, or practices of prayer, scripture, sacrament, liturgy, and so forth, handed down to us so that we'd be properly formed in worship. And here's what we've said is the purpose of the Christian religion. Number one, to properly form disciples to be like Christ. And number two, to preserve and pass on faith in Jesus Christ. As hard as it might be to hear, I submit to you that the vast majority of churches in the U.S., including Christian parents, have not embraced enough of the Christian religion and faith-forming practices to make a lasting impact on our lives, especially on our children. We rather sort of embrace the kind of make it up as you go or just relegate worship to Sunday morning. And as we can look across, I said, the landscape of Christianity today, we can see how shallow it is and how we have failed to properly form young people, which is showing in recent studies put out by the Barna Group. Some of you may have seen this. According to Barna, the percentage of young adult dropouts has increased from 59% back in 2011 to 64% in 2019. That means that nearly two-thirds of 18 to 29-year-olds in the U.S. who grew up in the church told Barna they had withdrawn from church involvement as an adult after having been a churchgoer as a child or a teen. And some suspect that that percentage has gone up even more through the pandemic, maybe as high as 70 or 75%. Now, I know that there are a variety of, of reasons, a variety of factors that have led to young people dropping out of the church. And we really need to be honest and name a few of those reasons this morning. For many, the church seems more interested in the Bill of Rights and the Constitution than in the New Testament. Certainly, the evangelical church has become increasingly nationalistic and has allowed herself to succumb to the line drawing and the polarities of American partisan politics. And church, frankly, it's appalling. For some, the church isn't embodying the love of Jesus and is out of touch with what's going on in the world, and they see that. The church doesn't seem relevant or worth their time. For others, the experience of the church wasn't a good one. Someone hurt them or abused them. And many have encountered very fundamentalist views of the Bible, which meant that there was no room for questions and no room for doubt. Science was viewed as a threat to faith, and in order to be faithful to Christ, the believer must oppose everything in secular society and live within a Christian bubble and subculture. And all of that has backfired on us. It's not worked. 
this us versus them mentality. There's also another reason, and one that I believe is a major factor in our young people not remaining in the church and embracing the faith after they leave home, and, and that is we've not been properly formed in the Christian religion week to week, nor have we taught them how to practice cultural discernment based on the scriptures and the gospel and how to navigate a world that in a lot of ways is hostile to the Christian faith and then give them the reasons why. And despite what the secular age may say about raising children, you know, that we just let them to decide what they want to believe, you know, it's, we let them decide what time they want to go to bed. We let them decide whether or not they're going to have a smartphone. We let them decide their gender. Folks, their brain isn't even fully developed until they're in their early 20s. And the kinds of things that we expect children to be able to do that grown adults can't even handle is astonishing. I have an agnostic uh, family member who believes that he's you know, raising his child this way. Uh, But really, it's just anti-faith because he's reacting and responding to his fundamentalist upbringing. You can see I responded a little differently to it. But we are all intended as parents to shape the minds and the hearts of our children. That's your job as a parent. They're sponges. They're soaking up everything, not just what you say, but also what you do, and they're looking for guidance how to live in this world, and how to navigate the challenges of this world. So that's our responsibility as parents and the church to guide them and help them aim their loves toward Christ and the kingdom. Because if we don't, believe me, the spirit of the age will be happy to form them for us. The world, which is a mix of good and evil, will happily form our children from ours upon hours of screen time, hours at school away from you, hours with their non-Christian friends, hours in sports and on the ball field and on the court, and through secular beliefs and liturgies which are constantly at work to shape their hearts and minds, and I would say liturgies that seem deeper with deeper roots and more formative power than an hour or two at church each week or once a month, which is now the average. There is no way that we can compete with all of those other forces if we are not religious. So let's think about this. Children are ritualistic animals. You can ask my wife who taught junior high for many years. Ritual was on her side, routines and rhythms. Some of you teachers, you know this. If you don't have rituals, routines, and rhythms in in place, it really creates disorder and chaos. And so it's in childhood and adolescence that we must, as the author Jamie Smith says, be intentional about the formative rhythms of the household so that in another recalibrating space that forms us and prepares us to be launched into the world to carry out both the cultural mandate and the Great Commission to bear God's image to and for our neighbors. In their recently published book, Handing Down the Faith, How Parents Pass the Religion on to the Next Generation, 
Sociologists Christian Smith and Amy Adamsick give us compelling empirical evidence that parents not only have the largest impact on their children's faith, but they give some insights into what works best in passing on faith and greatly increase the chances that our children will continue to follow Jesus into a world that doesn't know him. And so you don't have to go and read that book. I'm gonna sum up some of their findings for you in three primary points. Number one, this comes out of their findings. Religious parents raise religious children. Now, what do we mean by religious parents? Well, think back to how we've already defined that and how uh, the whole idea of making our faith a way of life and adopting religious practices. Truly religious parents aren't just passing on a belief system or morals and values. They are intended to embody their faith and show it through religious rhythms and routines. Not just on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday. From attending religious services and activities regularly to living out their faith at home. Smith and Adamsick write this, the more important religion is to parents, and the more parents attend religious services, the more important religion becomes for their children and the more their children attend religious services, even years after they no longer live with their parents. So it won't be enough simply that you pray before your meal and that you come to church whenever it's convenient. If, not, if there's not regular right, religious service attendance, if there's not a, a living out of your faith throughout the week, then you might as well forget passing on your faith to your children. That's what they're saying. Therefore, if you're nominally a Christian, that is, your faith is just a belief system, like just ideas in your head, like there's belief boxes that you just checked off, you know, and you want them to check off. If it's just that, if it's just something you confess and you only make time for religion when your schedule allows or you feel like it, then you won't be raising religious children. Number two, they say this, the most important thing a parent can do is talk about their faith at home. Now this may seem surprising, but simply talking about matters of faith at home as you go about your lives goes a long way. Yes, your belief system matters. Yes, your faithful attendance and worship and religious activities matter. But in terms of influence, the authors tell us talking about the faith on a regular basis at home matters most. Are you doing that at the dinner table? Are you doing that as they report back to you the kinds of things that they experienced in their day or the, the things that their friends are saying to them? Are you helping them to think biblically in those conversations? Or are you pointing them to your faith? Now, again, listen to that. Talking about the faith on a regular basis at home matters most. Now, why is that? And how is it that talking about your faith at home has that much power to influence? Well, the authors speculate that these conversations send a, quote, powerful signal to children of religion's personal importance, since after all, people usually talk about what they care about, right? You ever been around somebody that has a certain affinity for something? They're always talking about it. Well, if, if we have an affinity for Jesus, and let's go beyond that, an affection, and he's our everything, he's, he's central and he's supreme, then surely we would be talking about Jesus with our children. 
And we might also add that it serves to reinforce the fact that our faith is not just something we believe and do on Sunday. It is for life. Number three, they said that parents must speak the language of faith. You mean we should incorporate biblical verses and concepts, theological concepts and scriptural concepts into our speech? Yes. You mean we shouldn't discard of theological words and phrases? No, you shouldn't. You see, and the more you're familiar with that, the more that you're growing in your faith and learning these things, it should naturally just spill over into your families. And if you don't, you know, your kids are grown and you don't have a family at home anymore, it ought to be spilling over to your friends at work. It ought to be spilling over to, uh, you know, your other family members who don't know the Lord. Not in a forced, conniving, manipulative way, but just in a natural, organic way. The authors say learning to believe and practice a religion requires essentially learning a second language. And that always requires that you practice talking, even when uh, one is surrounded by native speakers. So when parents regularly talk with children about religious matters in ordinary conversational settings, that provides children with exactly the kind of sustained practice in learning the second language that's necessary for religion to be sensible and possibly interesting. Therefore, listen, if parents talk about the faith throughout the week, is they model that faith as well. Children are more likely to pick up the language and incorporate it into their own vocabulary. Also, the most, in, and most importantly, they are, they're more likely to be interested in the biblical truths conveyed through these conversations. It, make, it makes it easier for young people to be drawn to the same faith later in life, even if they stray for a time. We heard this verse earlier. It makes me think of the biblical proverb, Proverbs chapter 22, verse six. Start off children on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Now, sure, you could probably find an example of parents who did fairly well in raising their children in the faith and to love Jesus, but you know, they ran away from the Lord and never came back. You gotta remember, Proverbs are general. They're generally speaking. For the most part, this is true to our experience. If we start children off the right way and in love, not just saying it, but also embodying it, then when they are old, they will not, they will not depart from the faith. They will even return if they stray. I'm an example of this. I'm an example of that. Furthermore, consider this simple, these simple practices that research shows were commonalities among 18 to 29 year olds who stayed in the church and didn't leave. So this is, this is what families would be doing uh, for those that stayed in the church. These are practices that, that were in place. Number one, they ate dinner together regularly. This is very practical stuff. Again, I encourage you to take some notes on this. They ate dinner five of seven nights a week as a family. Five of seven nights. Number two, they served with their families in a faith-based ministry. They served together. And I've read some other studies that said that it really makes an impact when your children are with you in the service. Even in the worship services on Sunday, they're sitting with you. 
Number three, they were entrusted with significant responsibility in a ministry at a young age. Now, you remember my youth pastor did this for me. He gave me leadership position. I like to think that that, that impacted me <laughs> on the road to being a pastor, right? My wife, when she was 18, led choir in her church, and before that was assisting with vacation Bible school. These things really make a difference. So eating dinner together regularly, serving together and doing ministry together, and giving responsibility, significant responsibility to our youth matters. Number four, regular devotions at home. Before we've shown you a, a couple of different examples of this, uh, if you go to our, our information centers out in the hall, you can uh, click on and take a picture of one of the QR codes for Lectio for Families, an excellent thing you can listen to. It's an app on your phone. It's just one way of doing that. But regular devotions, they had at least one significant spiritual experience in the home during the week outside of church. That's really not too much to ask, is it? And then number five, they had believing mentors. They had at least one adult in their life other than their parents who believed the same thing as their parents and they poured into them. Now I can remember, I didn't have a children's pastor, but I remember some volunteers in the church who worked in children's ministry. A great impact on my life. Not just on Sundays, but even inviting me over to their house and getting to know their family really made a difference. So think about those, eating dinner together regularly, serving together, giving responsibility to young people, having regular devotions in your home, whether it's in the morning or, or bedtime. You know, we don't, we don't do devotions in the morning. Mornings are kind of chaotic for my family. Maybe you're not a morning person either. <laughs> But we do have this litany that we will say, and I will say with our boys in the car, I will say something, they will repeat it back to me, or they will say their part, which only lasts about a minute or two. But that's a regular routine we have in the morning. And then at night before bed, we take about 20 minutes to do family devotions. These things are critical in passing on our faith to our children. Are you doing these things? as a family or helping to see that this is happening with families in our church. I encourage you to see our pastoral staff, especially uh, children's pastor Denise and Chrissy, our youth coordinator, to help with some ideas and resources for parents as well as others who uh, maybe your children are already grown or you don't have children, ways that you can volunteer and serve our children and our youth, our families here at Grantham. I pray that you'll give some thought to how the Spirit is inviting you to respond. Finally, listen to these words from our Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 13 and 14, the people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples, who still didn't quite understand what Jesus was about, rebuked them. Get away, don't bother the master. But Jesus said, no, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. It is our responsibility to help our children and not to hinder them, to open our arms wide and welcome their little hearts and minds into the faith, to show them, not just teach them, but to show them the love of Jesus because Jesus tells us to.
Are we helping or are we hindering? In closing, here are two more questions to help us reflect and respond together. Think about these questions. Number one, if you're a parent, how can you be more intentional at home with developing faith in your children? Maybe from some of the things you've heard this morning, some of the slides you've seen, you've, you've gotten some ideas. Well, maybe I can do better at that. Oh, that's, a, that's great. I, I may try that. Just if, even if it was just one thing, I would commend you for that and to do that. So how is the Spirit speaking to you this morning about being more intentional and developing faith at home? And the number two, and this is for all of us, if you're an adult, how is the Spirit inviting you to share in the spiritual formation of our children and youth? Father, we are reminded this morning of the huge responsibility that we have to shape the faith of our children. Lord, we, we want to thank you for your grace because we know that we all fall short. And those whose children are grown and out of the house are probably reflecting and they know that they could have done some things differently. So we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you allow us to make mistakes, you allow us to stumble and fall. And we know that our children will struggle with things just as we've struggled with the experience of our own parents. But again, God, we thank you for your grace. Lord, help us with your strength and with your courage simply to do the best that we can do to be intentional in forming the faith of our children. For it's in Christ's name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen.